you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews and chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 is, as we have seen several times, uh, perhaps best known uh, among God's people as containing a very solemn warning uh, against turning away uh, from the things that one has uh, heard and learned and the experiences one has had uh, of the Christian life. And there is, again, a very grave warning given uh, that to fall uh, in such a situation is to put oneself uh, beyond the possibility of recovering. But then he says in verse 9, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love with which you, uh, which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do or continue to minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And I'll go ahead and read, just for the sake of context, the remainder of the chapter. We're going to be focusing on verses 11 and 12. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, let's pray and let's ask God's help once again as we come to his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this opportunity to expound and to give and to apply and to receive the word of the living God. And Father, we do pray that all that the Spirit of God intends uh, for this passage to accomplish for your glory and for our good and for the comfort and consolation of your people as well, Lord, as uh, perhaps necessary repentance and needed conversion. Father, all of these things you are able to do uh, because you are the Almighty, and we pray these things in the name of our reconciling Savior, Jesus. Amen. If you're listening uh, to somebody speak or you are uh, reading some communication and maybe uh, let's say as you're hearing you're, you're, you're behind a door and you're hearing the voice of this person and depending on what is being said, perhaps it's said in a rather agitated way, maybe even something that sounds a bit on the violent side, get out of here, what are you doing in here? You're thinking to yourself, well, who in the world 
are they talking to? Is he talking to his wife? Yeah, I sure hope not. Is he talking to his kids? What's going on there? What is being said needs to be interpreted in light of who's being talked to. And so when you come to a passage like Hebrews chapter 6, and it says something like, look, there are those of you who have had an experience of God's grace that is some powerful experience with the living God. You've understood the truth. You've participated in worship. You've been there with the presence of God, but you've turned aside and you've walked away and you are giving the Son of God over to a fresh crucifixion, it's impossible to restore you. Now, some hear that, and they think, he's talking about me. Well, again, you ask, well, who's he talking to? And then he comes to others, and he says, no, 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 listen, I, I'm convinced of better things concerning you. Says, well, well, who's that to? And now, he says to others, now listen, I want all of you. I want everyone. So you're asking yourself, all right, well, who... Who's being talked to? And this is something very crucial for any teacher or preacher of the word of God to try to make clear. Because if we hear something that is intended for an apostate and take it as one trying to walk in the fear of God, but who's struggling and maybe you had a really bad week or you've had a a bad couple of weeks and you're wrestling and you feel God is against you and you hear a sermon like that, you may walk away and think, there's no hope for somebody like me. Well, you're hearing the wrong thing. So in this passage, we have had uh, at, at this time several people being addressed. There are those who are immature, and they have what we have called a culpable immaturity. There are truths about the person and work of Christ, particularly the high priesthood of Christ and the identification of that priesthood after the order of somebody called Melchizedek. And we've only touched on that briefly. But that was enough for the preacher that when he gave it, he recognized and realized that for many in that congregation, what he wanted to get into was outside of their depth. And it's really culpable because by now they should have been teachers, but they were in need of going back and rehearsing some of the very fundamentals of the faith. And so that's part of who he's addressing He's also addressing the reality that some in the congregation may not only be uh, infantile uh, in their faith, immature in their faith, but they may be on the verge of apostasy and an apostasy that would place them beyond recovery. And yet there are others in the congregation as he's preaching, he says, now listen, I'm I'm not talking about you. Because for some of you, as I know you and have interacted with you, I am, I am persuaded, I'm convinced that the things that accompany salvation are in you. Now, before all of you pat yourself on the back, I want to let you know that all of us need to be in that condition. Okay, so that's something of the background with which the preacher of these words uh, is now uh, going to come and address. And as we uh, deal with the text today, you say to yourself, well, I don't think I'm in the apostate category. I'm not quite sure. I, I, I want to be in the category of I'm persuaded of better things. 
but maybe I'm not quite there. Well, then this is a message for you. So there are three things I want to bring out. I want to consider, first of all, the preacher's concern. Secondly, the preacher's desire. And then thirdly, the preacher's counsel. So very simple. First of all, the preacher's concern. He says again in verses 11 and 12, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of faith until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the preacher's concern is this. Having said again that some number in the church are living in such a way that a man of God who lives and labors among them, we read 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, and a pastor ought to know his congregation, just as a congregation ought to know their pastor. They ought to have some idea of the state of the flock. Now, they can never know that infallibly, but as best as they are uh, aware, as they interact and as they talk to others, uh, they're persuaded that the Lord has begun a really good work in them and that they're using the means of grace. They're growing, not perfect, but they're putting sin to death. They're seeking the Lord, etc. And having said that there are those in the congregation, how many, what percentage, whatever they are, there are those that he has persuaded that they are doing well. Now he makes it clear that in saying that, that I don't have that same confidence with everybody. Pastorally, he knows the reality that there will be in any given congregation variations. Now, I'm asked all the time when I'm getting together with somebody, meeting a pastor for coffee or a a meal or something like that. I'll be going to Owensboro tomorrow for a couple of days as part of the board. I'm I'm on the board for the the seminary uh, out there. And no doubt, as I sit down with this pastor and that part, at some point they're going to say, how are things at the church? Now, there were days when I said in the first number of years of the church, it's great. It's just great. But at some point you say, well, you know, it's a church. This is my usual answer. Well, it's a church. (laughs) And that means some are struggling and some are really going through a hard time and, and some are barely hanging on. Some are doing really well and some are hanging on by their fingernails and Some people are really struggling. They're struggling in their homes. They're struggling with their faith. It's a church. And that's part of the reality that you see in the word of God. There are variations in congregations. In any given congregation, there are going to be new converts. There will be others who are mature and strong. Uh, The church at Rome had those who were strong, and Paul said those who are weak. There are some who are grounded and others who are unstable uh, due to a variety of reason. And, And the heart of this pastor is, knowing all of those variations, I want everybody to be in a place where they're thriving. What do you want for your congregation? I want all of them to have a confident, well-grounded biblical assurance. I want everybody to be flourishing in their faith regardless of their circumstance. I want to see people 
clinging to the Lord and fighting their sin and loving one another. That's what he's expressing here. He has a desire, and we'll expound a bit more later what that means, that all of them, all of those that the Lord had given to him in his congregation, all those that are under his care would thrive. I don't know, any pastor worth his salt who doesn't want that, and if he doesn't care about that, he shouldn't be in ministry. He wants all of them to enjoy, again, a robust sense of assurance. He wants them to thrive in their faith, and if they are not where they ought to be, it burdens him. He cares about them. This pastor, this preacher, is somebody who has what I'm going to call a righteous vision for his congregation. And it is an every member vision. You see this in places like Colossians chapter 1 where where Paul says this. Talking about his ministry. And again, I'm picking up in the middle of an argument. But bear with me in that verse 28. Speaking of Christ, him we preach. Warning every man. And that's generic here. Warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone, every one of you, perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. Why do you preach? Why do you pray? Why do you engage in pastoral counsel? It's unto the end that not just some, hey, 25% of our congregation is mature in Christ Jesus. Well, you know, there are some pastors who would go, man, that's really good. Wish I could say that. Well, what what Paul wanted was everyone. He wanted everyone there. And so he said, to this end, I also labor striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And even with that, even with the power of the spirit working mightily through his ministry, with a ministry focused in the proclamation of Christ, not everyone was where they ought to be. Do you understand that that's the background of this? But I'm laboring, I continue to labor, I continue to give with the confidence that God will use his word to stabilize and mature and grow his people. That's his goal, publicly and privately. You see something very similar in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. This is talking about the gifts the risen Christ gives to the church and the purpose unto which he gives them. And he, that is Christ himself, gave some to be uh, um, apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now listen, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now listen to this language. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And he goes and he go on to say that we no longer be children tossed uh, to and fro, driven about by every wind and wave of doctrine. This is the reason Christ gives ministry. So I gave the apostles and the prophets and why evangelists and pastors and teachers are given to build up and to mature every single person in the congregation. So that, uh, silly illustration, but you know, it's 
you're not, it doesn't want anybody sitting there thinking, well, I'm the caboose. I'm always going to be the caboose. I'm always going to be the last one. I'm always going to be the weakest. And that's fine. No, I, I don't want you to be there. I want us all to cross the line together. I want you all to be strong. So let me give a, a, a family illustration. If, if you have more than one child, how many of them do you want to thrive? Well, just your favorite one, right? No. What if, what if you have three kids, two are thriving and one isn't? Eh, two out of three ain't bad. It's pretty good. What if you have six children and four are doing great, but two aren't? Or five are doing great and one isn't? Does that affect you and burden you? Now, you may or may not feel guilty. You may sense that you have not done anything different with the one than with the other. But that's not the issue. It still matters to you. Jesus talks about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one of them went astray. And he did the calculation. He thought, no big deal. Remember that? And he just went and spent all his time with the 99 who were doing... No, he, he left the 99 and he went after the one who is who went astray. What he's reminding us is that look, th- there is no church where there, are, where there are not differences in growth, but there is still a desire. Yes, in any church, there are some who are mature and some who are immature... Some are immature simply because of age and experience. Some are immature on purpose. They're content to be immature. And at any given time, at any given congregation, as you look out, you say there are those who are striving in the race, taking hold of the means given to them. And you are seeing as a result of that dividends Paid in their lives. They're investing in their soul. To use the language of Galatians, they're sowing to the spirit and they're reaping of the spirit. They seek the Lord and they find him. They read the word and they grow in grace. When the Lord says to them, as it were, by the prompting of the spirit, Allah Psalm 27, seek my face. Their heart says, your face, O Lord, I will seek. They implement what they hear. When the word of God comes and confronts, it alters them. Little by little, line upon line, precept upon precept, one degree of glory to another. Others, however, again, are struggling. And to some degree, we all are. I'm not saying nobody, I'm not saying beyond struggle. Some are are really up and down. Some are just coasting along making little to no effort to grow, content with where they are, content to have enough Christianity and the bare minimum of Jesus to get to heaven. And there are some who I have heard use use lines like, listen, if the gates of heaven pinch my rear end as they close, I'm okay with that. And I get what they say. Look, yeah, get there. By all means, get there. But there's little effort to know Christ, little effort, of course, to make him known. There are means available by which they could get stronger. 
but they're okay with ignoring them. And again, a true-hearted shepherd is going to notice such things and care for such things and address such things publicly and where needed privately. This concern for some in the church is, as already noted, scattered throughout the epistles. And it's seen again through church history. It's seen in our day. It's a reality in our own church life. Now, the facts that I have just stated, the fact that this is so, and the fact that you may yet get to heaven, is not meant to comfort you in that condition. Yeah, I thought I was the only one. Well, I guess there's other, there's other, there are other coasters in the church. And, and, and as long as I'm not alone, or as long as I'm not that unusual, the Bible talks about it, church history addresses it, it's obvious it's here, therefore it's okay. That's not what I'm saying. If all you ever wanted out of your faith is some sort of get out of hell free card, again, enough Jesus to get into the gates of heaven, but we need to ask, is there no desire to be holy, no desire to love him, to obey him, to know him and grow in him, no desire to impact the lost and dying world in which you live, no desire to comfort the afflicted? Then again, you have reason to doubt whether or not the grace of God has done a work in you at all. Again, you may not be alone in that. It may be all too common and far too many churches but it shouldn't be in that sense tolerated again having said that i want to reiterate that the simplest faith as we were reminded recently faith the size of a mustard seed is enough to lay hold of the lord jesus a strong faith can lay hold of a strong christ i want to state afresh that we are not saved by our effort we are not more justified by how much we read our Bibles or memorize or meditate, but there are joys, and this is the point of the text, there are joys and comforts and usefulness that could be available to you with diligence. The reality is that when a sinner has simply laid hold of him, that having experienced the transformation from darkness to light, that happens every time a person is converted ought to result in new desires. If anyone is in Christ, anyone, young or old, hardened sinner, converted at 50, or someone born and raised in a Christian home or in the church, if anyone is in Christ, you're a new creation, whether it's 3 or 30 or 60 or 90. All right, so that's his concern. Do you feel that? Do you understand that? Do you see that in the text? Secondly, the preacher's desire. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you do not become sluggish. So it's stated here, his desire is stated positively and negatively. He desires that everyone, every person in the congregation, every member of the church, every baptized, confessing believer, that they would show the same diligence as those that he just talked about. Look, he said, I'm I am persuaded that there are things that accompany salvation. And as you lay out what that is, some say, well, that's not very much in my life. He goes, all right, listen, if that's the case, 
then what do you need to do to get to the place where that's true of you? Because I want this to be true of all of you. I want to be able to stand up and look in your eye when I'm teaching or when I'm preaching and say to everybody here, look, we share this heart in common. We are striving together as a congregation, not just 60% or 70% or 80% or 90, but all of us together. Look in the mirror, see where you are, and see where the word wants you to be, where you ought to be, and to ask the question, with the help of the almighty spirit of God, what am I going to do about it? So the desire here is stated, first of all, positively. Now, let me say something about this word desire. It's a very strong word here. And desire generally is. I desire this. And we usually reserve a word like that for something we really want. I desire. It, it, it speaks of pastoral passion. And you note that it is in the plural we. Now, this could be an editorial we or a royal we. But I think that there is something more than that. I think it refers both to what we might call a pastoral team but also, in a sense, the others in the congregation, the mature brethren in the congregation. And we could even add that it reflects the heart of the Savior. That if Jesus could come and preach to us here and say, listen, you know who I am? You know what I've done for you? You know what I'm willing to do in you if you will strive? Well, can't you just do it magically, Jesus? Can't you just do it suddenly and dramatically? Can't we just take a spiritual pill and, and have it all happen? And, uh, actually, you can do it, but it's going to take diligence. So you won't want to hear that. If I said to you, like, look, most of you, almost all of you could run a marathon. And you're like, well, yeah, but I don't know that I want to do what I need to do to do it. Yeah, I could. Technically, that's true. Given enough time, given enough effort, given enough diet, given enough exercise, yeah, we probably uh, could do that. But I, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> but here's a congregation that says, look, we, we all want to run together. The care and burden of souls is not limited to the pastoral office. I trust each one of you cares not only for your own growth and hope and assurance, but that of those who have joined with us. We're going to be bringing in three new members today, and we're going to, we're, we are making a commitment to them. And part of that is, look, we're going to help you get to heaven in the best shape possible. And we believe that being with, and it's going to be very apparent here in a moment, that being with godly people will help you onto that end. We have a common goal and a common heart. And this is why, again, I believe it benefits us to be part of a church, not to live our Christian life in, in isolation. To have people and members and pastors and deacons committed to meet your needs, the variety of your needs, physical needs, spiritual needs, and other things to help you to grow. And he says, we desire this. We crave this. It's on our hearts, on our mind. He cares the burden of this over the long haul is what takes a toll on a man. That's why very often you'll find an old preacher who will say, gets to be 70-something years old, and it's, and it's just 
he's got to step down. And he says, I could keep preaching. I just don't have the strength to pastor anymore. And this is what he means. This take, if, if you have this heart, it'll sometime erode your health. It will affect your ability to sleep. It'll consume your mind at times. It'll wear you out. But that's what he's talking about. I care. He's burdened. The burden of this over the long haul takes a toll on a man. To care not only for his own soul. And guys who want to be in ministry, listen, understand this. To care not only for your own soul and, the soul, and to strive to care for the souls of your family. But to take on the burdens of others. To have the heart that Paul expressed when he said to the elders of the church in Ephesus, I desire or I believe I am free from the blood of all men because I did not shrink from declare to you the whole counsel of God but taught it to you publicly and from house to house. It shows itself in words and prayer and preaching and in deeds to come alongside someone to comfort, exhort, if need be, rebuke and instruct. If you're struggling or flailing or giving little effort, we don't want to blow you off. That's a temptation sometimes. Look, let's just focus on those who are doing well. We spend so much time in our pastoral meetings talking about people that are struggling. And at times we leave it and we're a little depressed. And we know many are doing well. And well, well let's, let's talk about those who are doing well. Let's encourage ourselves. But listen, we can't get to the point where we say, look, let's just cauterize our hearts. And let's, let's burn off the nerve endings so we don't care so much. That, that can be a, a temptation. But they care. They, these, these, he's talking about a burden, a we, a we care about you in hope and desire for a greater and deeper and more lasting work of the spirit in your life. And this care is expressed in the desire or determination that those hearing him would be diligent. Now, this is so key. And and while, again, I want to avoid at all costs a works righteousness mentality or simply, hey, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. I do want to exhort as well to give diligence onto the attainment and maintenance of your spiritual health. It's a diligence that results in what he calls a full assurance. Who gets to have a full assurance? Well, again, anybody who is in Christ, anybody who's called on the name of the Lord ought to have a degree of assurance. But there are those who have what he calls a full assurance, a complete confidence, assurance, certain hope until the end. The end of what? Well, till they see Jesus. So let me break that down a little bit. The desire is a determination to be diligent. To say, come on, guys. If you're slacking, if you're falling behind, if you've grown careless, child of God with the aid and help of the spirit of God, fixing your eyes on Christ, let's run together more robustly. And if we do that, it will produce in the life of the professing Christian a full or a fuller assurance or confidence. So let me ask you a question. 
So I went through a time, I went through a period of backsliding in my life years and years ago. And when I was in that condition, I wanted to avoid certain kinds of preaching. I, if the pastor, you know, it's like, hey, all right, this is what the sermon's going to be on Sunday. And somebody goes, ah, I think I'll go on vacation. I think I'm going to get sick that day. You know, you kind of want to avoid it. If that, do you understand that's not healthy? <laughs> to, to not desire, again, I'm not talking about a kooky sermon. I'm talking about a faithful sermon. Are you weary, perhaps, of wondering, based on the scant evidence in your life, whether or not the Lord has done a work of grace in your heart? Now, on a purely theological level, this ought not to be the case. You know, you read certain things in the Bible and you say, why is this ever an issue? Remember John says in his epistle, he says, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. And shouldn't it be obvious? So I don't know. I think I'm a child of God, but maybe I'm a child of the devil. You know, those, those aren't like, you know, a, you know, like when you look at the apples, you, you know, God, you know, your wife says, go pick out an apple and make sure it's, you know, the sweet one, not the tart one. And you're looking at it like, you know. I don't know. I can't, I can't tell the difference. Chim, that's so obviously a granny smell. Is that the green one? I can't. I, I don't even. I, I, anyway, whatever it is, you think, well, a, child, a child of the devil? You ever looked at somebody? You know, I know this happens sometimes. Maybe really an old person, and they're asleep in a chair, and they got their head back, and you're like, are they dead? So this happens because I, I, I do sometimes, I guess, I, I, I'm bad. I, I, I should do something about this. I guess I have a degree of sleep apnea. So I said, my wife hits me at two times during the night, one when I'm making noise and one when I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and to make sure I'm still alive. Um, but generally speaking, you know, I'm not looking out here and going, all right, is everybody here? Alive, I think everybody's, but the Bible, you're either alive or you're dead, right? You're, you're, you're either in the kingdom of light or in the kingdom of darkness. That's, that's the theology. And we say, well, well, then how is there ever a question? Why, why does a pastor ever wonder? Why does a friend ever wonder, or a spouse ever wonder, or a person ever wonder whether or not I'm really in the faith, if conversion is the result of a powerful work of grace, sovereign grace, if you were dead in your sins and trespasses and God made you alive and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places and took the blindness from your eyes and infused your dead soul with life, you think, well, that ought to be obvious. It ought to be real and objective. I mean, it is real. And all that I've just said is real and objective and fully gracious. Then what makes the difference? Why is it that as time goes on, begin to wonder? It's the difference, dear ones, between the objective work of justification and the subjective labor of sanctification. It's the difference between having been granted life previously, or excuse me, graciously, and the pursuit of Christ afterward. 
You see, in the Bible, there is a striving that flows from rest, a labor that attends a work of grace. One is once for all justification, a declaration by God that a guilty sinner is freed from the condemnation of their sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are united to Christ, rooted fully in the work of Jesus and received by faith. It is by grace that you have been saved, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But the sinner now saved, the guilty now pardoned, is given a new life and a new heart and a new will. They're given a new decider that can decide, will I or won't I? Will I fight or not fight? Will I cave or not cave? Will I go to the fountain or not go to the fountain? The practical work of keeping the heart and of fighting the, with sin with the help of the spirit is that burden that comes upon the new believer. We are now entering the realm, having been saved by grace, of spiritual labor or action by which a person is made bold and strong and confident or weak and doubtful. Now, the difference is seen in these terms. On the one hand, diligence, as opposed to being a sluggard. That's what the text lays out. Now, these are pretty different, aren't they? <laughs> these are called antonyms, kids. Diligence and sluggardliness. Now, we, we, know, we know what diligence means, right? Mom or dad, you say to your kid, go clean your room. And maybe they trudge up the stairs, okay. And it's an hour later. And you walk in and, like, you know, they're wearing a hat and socks on their hands and a uh, you know, the dolls are dressed. You know, you're like, well, what did you, what did I send you up to do? Clean my room? Yeah, like, you should have been done it. <laughs> this, look, look, watch. This takes three minutes. It's diligence. Paying attention. It's, it's action. So we're told in the word of God, keep your heart with all diligence. I, I know we, we're, we're Protestants. We get uncomfortable with, with work. We want grace, not law. But the, there, there are elements here we have to understand that make a difference in our lives. You think of two night watchmen. One's alert, walking about, checking doors, listening intently, making sure his flashlight batteries are charged, that his gun is loaded. He wouldn't think about putting in his earbuds, kicking back with a brewski let alone sleeping when he is tasked with guarding someone or something. But Jim, at my job, okay, look, I'm giving an illustration. I know some of you, maybe you guard something that, you know, nobody would ever steal and that's how you just have to be. Okay, I, I'm giving an illustration. Hey, but you know the difference, right, between the diligent night watchman and the indifferent sleepy distracted. Which one do you want guarding your soul? The diligent one. How will we grow? Well, I'm going to give you a little formula here, okay? You'll never grow by being a sluggard. We've, you've seen or you've known a slur or been maybe a sluggard. 
one marked by indolence, laziness, lack of effort. Wanting results, man, I sure wish I could run that marathon. Am I sitting on the ice cream? (laughs) I want the results, but there's no action. Benefit without labor, wealth without work, produce without planting and watering. We are not to lack in diligence. We cannot sleep our way to heaven and expect that all will be well. There is a joy that comes from knowing you're in the fight. Look, you may lose that fight sometimes, but you're in it. You want to grow. You want to know Christ and love others and not be so easily entangled with certain sins. To not have the world have such a grip on you. There's a powerful statement that some years ago I read and has gripped me ever since. And it goes back a little bit to something said earlier. Psalm 119. In verse 5 he says, Oh that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. See it's possible to sin and not be ashamed. They said, what do you mean by that? This is what I mean by that. So here's a husband trying to love his wife. Okay? And maybe on one day he's, he's, a, he's a little bit short or something like that with his temper. But that doesn't mark. It's not the way he usually is. And he confesses it and he's sorrowful. But when he reads in the Bible the next day, husbands love your wives. He doesn't have to like rip his he, garments because he knows consistently that's what he's trying to be. And when he reads in the Bible to love others or serve others, he's able to say, you know, Lord, I'm not all that I ought to be, but Lord, this is the heart you've given to me, and there's evidence in my life. You understand what I'm saying? There's no embarrassment. So there's no embarrassment. There's no shame of like, what am I doing with my life? I don't do any of this. Do you see the difference? This is why some don't want to come to the word. It just reminds them of their failure. And again, I, I do, uh, you, you've been here long enough. You know that my ministry is not one of just trying to make you all embarrassed, man up, and time for you, you wimps. And I, I don't do that. But some don't want to be at a church. They don't want to hear ministry. They don't want to read the word. And sometimes they don't want to have fellowship with mature Christians because they feel guilty And they are afraid of exposure and afraid of confrontation. And again, dear ones, that ought not to be. It doesn't have to be. And it ought not to be. All right, let's consider now the preacher's counsel. So what do you do? This is fascinating. This is really encouraging in a lot of ways. Verse 12 says, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is why I said before, and I say again, that we don't live our Christian lives in isolation. That's why the body of Christ is important, and and, and whether it's in our congregation or or brethren you know elsewhere who are mature Christians. Do you know the difference, don't you, some of you who do run, between running by yourself and running with somebody else? Don't you almost always last longer and go further? When somebody's there, and maybe, you know, I, you know, that maybe the competition kicks in and, 
and, and other things. But somebody's there, hey, come on, we can do, all right, all right to that post, let's keep going. Let's, let's do, I, I bet we can do one more. I bet we can do one more. Somebody who comes alongside. In the race that is set before us, there are some, for every believer, no matter how mature, there will be some, or should be some, that you look to as examples of what you want to be and what you ought to be. That is, in a congregation, there ought to be people who actually live out something of the dynamics of the Christian life. Maybe some do one thing really well, and some do another thing really well, and some do another thing well, and some are more uh, rounded in it. But as you think about it and think about what God's calling you to be, and you read it in your Bible, it's so helpful that sometimes there is before you a living example of this kind of person. The writer focuses on the virtues of faith and patience or faith and perseverance. If there's a question of some who will experience the reality, again, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, will understand that there also are those who will hear the words, enter into the joy of your Lord. There are those who will inherit the promises now, some of those promises have to do with the promise uh, to Abraham of the coming of Christ and the blessings of the Messiah. But there's also the kinds of promises we read about in the book of Revelation, the world without tears and sorrow and pain, a place where we will follow the lamb wherever he goes, and the promise made to the fathers long ago of the Messiah and the kingdom that he would bring, and the hope of full assurance that belongs to the diligent. Look, there are some people who, when they die, a preacher is like, look, you, they already preached their funeral sermon. The way they lived was their funeral sermon. And you get up there and you say, listen, if anybody, I, I have this confidence that if anybody who by faith and perseverance, as it were, has inherited the promises, it's this beloved one who has gone before is there somebody like that, somebody in your family or somebody in your church or somebody in your life? Somebody that you know is fighting and has conquered the sin that is entangling you. Somebody whose life is cultivated by the word, who put the word of truth into action and how they love their family or whatever and love their neighbor, who put off and put on according to the truth of God's word. And, and people who live this way get to live with the blessing of, 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 of assurance. It's said of deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. They attain that. How do they attain it? Well, because in a biblically instructed congregation, God's people have read the scriptures, 1 Timothy 3, and they have looked at their life and said, brother, that's you. And they don't go, of course it is. I've been waiting for everybody to see that. No, it's, it's like, you listen, what you're saying in that is, and again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But part of what's being said there is, brother, I, or sis, brother, I see God's work in you. And to come alongside to a sister and say, you know, I've been watching you. You have. 
Don't be creeped out. I mean, what I mean by that, I, I see God's work in you. I've been watching you. I've been watching how you interact with others. When we get together and pray, and I listen to you pray, I'm just so encouraged. Is there something that prevents this in your life? Is there some laziness or lack of the means of grace? Is it perhaps discouragement or disappointment or working through a dark providence that has put a wet blanket, as it were, on your Christian experience? But do you know someone who has been where you are and is still holding on to hope? You see, sometimes for some, a dark providence crushes, and, but sometimes you see somebody who's been through exactly what you've been through, had the losses that you have had, the disappointments you have, and they're hanging on, and you say, how did you do that? This is what this text is encouraging. Ask them how. Do you know anyone who excels in love and patience? Anyone who comes to mind when it speaks about perseverance and bearing up? Are there people in your life that you see trusting the Lord in the very areas where you're struggling? See, again, you're not in the race alone. Someone has been where you are, and they've matured. Is there a man you know that lives out what it means to love his wife and his children? Is there someone who demonstrates a life of faith and trust and dependence? And understand, they're just people. You know, I'm struck by that statement of James. Of all the people he chose to say, you know who's like you? Elijah. Why'd you pick, pick I don't know, Obadiah or something, you know? Really, Elijah's like me. Yeah. Well, he's he's just a guy. And he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for... Three and a half years. It's amazing. It's just a man. Yeah, called by God, but just a man. And listen, whoever is that the Lord is using and that you see Christ formed in them, they're just guys and girls. They're just people. But they have done some diligence. And sometimes they can say, yeah, you know what? There are some things that I've done. And yes, it's God's grace, and yes, it's God's blessing, but he has blessed my efforts and labor. And if they can, I want to say it this way, if they, if they can do it with the help of the Spirit, well, in the help of that same Spirit, so can you. But ask yourself, and more to the point, ask them, what happened? What did you do? What did you do that I can do? Were there steps that you took? Have you ever struggled with this? What did you do then? And the writer says that when you find that person, imitate them. This is where we get our English word mimic. You ever mimic someone? You watch how they walk or how they talk or how they do a certain thing, and often that's done for laughs. Well, this isn't for comedic effect. It's putting into practice something of the way they do things, to be more like them and doing so being more like the Savior. Imitate me, Paul says. And in doing that, you're imitating Christ because we can't see him. Him having not seen, we love. He's in heaven. But we all seem to know that when we see or hear someone doing or saying a certain thing in a certain way, You say, though I never saw him, 
This is what he must have been like. Bonar was able to say of Robert Murray McShane, he was the most Jesus-like man that I ever knew. And it makes you think, oh, I wish I could have known McShane and walked with a man like that in this life and have an idea of what it would have been like to walk with the Savior. Is there somebody who reminds you of Jesus in certain ways? What are they doing? If you follow them, you will in this sense be following him. So dear ones, we long for Christ to be formed in you. But we can't do it for you. We will labor to help you, but we can't do it for you. Don't be a sluggard. With diligence, pursue with an eye toward those who are mature in Christ. Strive to be like them. Now, if none of this makes any sense, and you've given really no thought to anything that Christianity is anything other than, well, I have a soul that will never die. I don't want to go to hell when I die. Jesus will save me from the wrath of God. And you think, well, and that's it, full stop. That's, Christi- that's Christianity. And too often that has been sold as the whole of Christianity. But you know, the word of God portrays the Christian faith as knowing and following this Savior, even at great cost. So that Christ is portrayed as a pearl of great price, which in order to obtain, a man will sell all that he has and not view himself as any the worse. You see, it's not just coming, and we do invite you, we do want you to come and to know the blessing of the the perfect one who died on the cross and who did bear the wrath of God for our sins and the one who will gift us with a righteousness that will withstand the day of judgment and allow us to stand in his presence faultless and without blame. But all that I'm talking about flows from the preciousness of knowing that he's worth knowing and that he's worth pursuing and that he's worthy of the best effort of your life but in order to know that you have to first see him and to see him you must be cleansed by him and so go to him crucified and behold him enthroned and full of glory let's pray our father we do thank you for these moments in your word and pray heavenly father that you will bless them to our hearts Father, that you will renew, as it were, our, our faith in him, our hope in him, and our desire to know him and to make him known. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name.